Welcome to the last Musonomics episode of 2015. I'm Larry Miller. It's the end of the year, and for music fans, the end of the year means one thing in particular. List season. Every music outlet, blog, and budding Spotify playlist maker is churning out lists of the best albums, songs, and artists of 2015. And here at Musonomics, we've been hard at work on a list of our own. In today's show, we're going to take a look back at what we consider to be the three most important music industry stories of 2015. Among them, a record-breaking album release, a market shift toward streaming over ownership, and a government agency's recommendation for how to fix our outdated copyright laws. Today, Neil Shah of The Wall Street Journal joins us on the show. Neil covers music and entertainment from the Journal's New York Bureau. But before we hear from him, let's hop right in with our first big story of 2015. Our first story, of course, is Adele and her new record, 25, which was released on November 20th. But really, this story starts farther back than that. At the start of 2015, there was at least one thing that everyone thought would never change, and that was the sales record for first-week album sales. That record was set by NSYNC's 2000 release No Strings Attached, which sold 2.4 million copies in its first week. No Strings Attached came about at a perfect time for record-setting sales, it was the new millennium and the peak of the CD boom. Album sales were up industry-wide, and armed with the broad appeal of NSYNC's perfect pop formula, No Strings Attached was a sales juggernaut. But of course, the music industry marketplace that existed at the turn of the millennium looks almost nothing like today's marketplace. Physical sales are down. 2015 was the year that, for the first time, Digital music revenues overtook physical music sales. Average record sales numbers have decreased across the board. According to Billboard, the top-selling albums of 1998, 99, and 2000 combined for just shy of 29 million units sold, while 2014, 13, and 2012's top sellers combined to move only 10.5 million copies. The size of the industry would seem to have shrunk by more than 50% as the marketplace has shifted from brick-and-mortar stores to online sellers and from ownership to streaming. That's why no one saw this coming. Hello. We knew that a fresh Adele album it's would be a big deal. Her previous effort, 21, was the top seller of both 2011 and 2012. But we didn't know it would be this big of a deal. Adele's 25 sold 3.38 million units in its first week, obliterating NSYNC's unbreakable no-strings-attached record and becoming the first album ever to sell more than 3 million copies in a week. It's only the 20th album to sell more than a million copies in its first week since Nielsen started tracking those numbers in 1991, and it marks the best first-week sales ever for a female artist. After two weeks, the album sold four and a half million, and as of December 28th, 25 sold over seven million copies. Adele's been really successful by going the old school route of 
putting out a release and uh, doing a little bit of promotion. She actually did less promotion than might have been typical. But you put out the album, you put out a single, hope it's a success, and everybody buys it. That's, that's totally old school, and not only was it a success, it was a success by old school industry standards. So that's what has got everyone surprised. That's today's guest, Neil Shaw, from the Wall Street Journal. He's talking about Adele's release strategy for 25. As you may have found out on your own, 25 isn't on Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal, or any other on-demand streaming service. And as though her sales numbers weren't enough of an achievement on their own, Adele managed to get those numbers while almost completely ignoring the industry's fastest-growing product, the subscription streaming service. The music business is in a state of flux right now. Something like the spectacular success of 25 by Adele confuses matters because it definitely suggests that um, there's a lot of money still to be made with physical or downloads. It raises the question, what does this mean? Is the switch to streaming that we're a part of right now really something that completely has a future? And I think people generally acknowledge the extent to which Adele is an anomaly. We're talking about a megastar, not a star. Her firepower dwarfs um, a lot of the other pop stars that we have. Adele and also Taylor Swift are huge exceptions, so it makes sense for them strategically, for their business, to maximize all the non-streaming business that they can do. You have a lot of people really happy that this seems to have revived the music business and physical sales. People who love CDs are, are celebrating this moment, but the fact is, it really only applies to to some of the biggest names and, and, and folks slightly below that, like your Coldplay's and your Rolling Stones and whatnot. So Adele's success, though impressive, perhaps doesn't foretell a future without streaming. In fact, if we look outside of Adele in 2015, the rest of the music industry seems to be jumping on the streaming bandwagon, which brings us to our second story. The rise of the on-demand streaming service and the escalation of the streaming wars. The most recent example of streaming's rise to prominence came just this week as the Beatles catalog hit nine major streaming services. This is a reminder of how dominant streaming is becoming in the music business and the extent to which it's the future. What does the Beatles' decision to put their entire catalog on these nine streaming services mean? It suggests that they know, they see the writing on the wall when it comes to digital downloads. The Beatles were late in adopting the CD. I think it was 1987. Uh, they were late with iTunes. I think it was only in 2010 that they that their stuff come, came on iTunes. They systematically are, are, are late to the party, but they're doing it on purpose because they're maximizing what they can get out of their um, out of traditional sales. Further evidence of streaming's bright future can be found in the glut of new subscription streaming services launched this year. Way back in our second episode, we took a look at the launch of Tidal, Jay-Z's venture into the world of streaming. In March, Tidal waded into the already crowded field. There was industry leader Spotify, but there was also Deezer, Ardeo, Rhapsody, and Beats Music, just to name the biggest competitors. In an attempt to set itself apart from the pack, Tidal touted, among other things, superior sound quality and trotted out a cast of big-name artist owners that promised exclusive music and a fair ecosystem for compensating artists. Since launch, Title has been in the news for all the wrong reasons. 
Though the service reports that it reached 1 million subscribers in October, Title has gone through multiple CEOs and maintains a challenged public image at best. You do have a powerful group of artists behind Title, but it has struggled, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens to it next year. Its rollout in terms of the mechanics of using it, there have been some difficulties there too. So th those things need to be improved. Title was just one of a glut of on-demand streaming services launched this year. In October, YouTube launched YouTube Red, a service that has an immense potential user base, but has yet to prove its ability to tap into that base. In November, Pandora made a definitive move toward an on-demand streaming service by acquiring certain assets of RDO, which declared bankruptcy. One thing that'll be interesting to see is who falls by the wayside. I would expect the field to consolidate and there to be fewer players left and then a fight increasingly between the, the heavyweights and, and, a, and a fight to differentiate themselves. I, I, I imagine many Americans, when they're thinking about a streaming service, they just go to what seems available and easy to use and maybe they don't appreciate the differences between the different services, so which ones have a higher resolution option, a higher fidelity. Maybe people don't know the differences, so uh, maybe there'll be an effort to, to differentiate themselves a little bit more. By far, the most noteworthy streaming service launch of 2015 came in the form of Apple Music. Back in June, Apple finally launched their long-awaited foray in the streaming market with Apple Music, an on-demand streaming service that mashed together parts of Apple-owned Beats Music, iTunes Radio, and a Tumblr-like social media thing called Connect. The most controversial aspect of Apple Music's launch was the decision that there would be no royalties paid to rights holders during an initial three-month retrial period. Though it seemed that major labels were curiously on board, many indie labels balked. Most importantly, Taylor Swift balked. Back in 2014, Swift struck out against the streaming model by pulling her catalog from Spotify. In 2015, she publicly lashed out at Apple's three-month no royalties period. In a Tumblr post from June 21st, she wrote that her new album 1989 would not be available on Apple Music, reasoning that, and I quote, three months is a long time to go unpaid, and it is unfair to ask anyone to work for nothing. We don't ask you for free iPhones, Please don't ask us to provide you with our music for no compensation. The surprising thing here is not that Taylor was upset, or even that she planned to withhold her album, but that her open letter actually worked. After the Tumblr post and the media frenzy that followed, Apple performed an almost instant about-face, saying that they'd seen the error in their ways and would be compensating rights holders for those three months. Since that kerfuffle, T-Swift and Apple have gone on to form a fruitful working relationship, first with Taylor bringing her album 1989 to Apple Music, and then announcing earlier this month that the official concert film of her 1989 world tour would be an Apple Music exclusive debuting on December 20th. I think Apple is really smart. The amount of royalties we're talking about when we're talking about the initial plan to 
not pay artists royalties tied to music streamed during an individual's free trial process, we're not talking about a lot of money. So their about face earned them a massive amount of good PR and didn't cost them all that much. So they didn't have much to lose by switching gears. So as a result, you didn't have people saying, oh gosh, Apple doesn't know what it's doing. Taylor Swift can totally turn around Apple strategy. In fact, I think Apple just got plaudits for hearing the artist community and being nicer to, to musicians and, you know, the, and the record labels and the entire music business by adopting this route. On Taylor's side, there also is not a lot to lose. She's also pursuing her best business interests by, by going this route. So it is, it is a, a victory of sorts for artists, for, for musicians, and for labels that want to a fair amount of royalties when their music is used. It is a win against um, freemium. But um, Taylor Swift is one of the few artists that can make money from streaming, given her global size. She has an economy of scale that makes it easier for her to make money through all kinds of streaming. So in a way, it's, it's a strategy that's easy for her to have made this move. And what of Apple Music since launch? How has the service fared now that most of those initial free trials have ended? Apple reported in October that they'd done something like six and a half million paid conversions to the service. And of course, many millions more than that who are still on the free trial. One analyst predicts that Apple Music is ending 2015 with just under eight million paid users, and that the total should more than double by the end of 2016 to approach 20 million. So three months in, Apple is at about a third of the size that Spotify is, in terms of worldwide paid users. Spotify has 20 million paid and about 75 million overall, including the free service. Apple does not have a free ad-supported service like Spotify. Is this a win for Apple? I think people were looking for Apple to do better. Apple has a lot of heft. We're talking about one of the most celebrated companies of our time. You have a huge base of people attached to digital downloads in the iTunes store. I think people were looking for, even by now, for more people to have made that transition. It's a key question. You have to give them more time, I guess. But, I mean, one thing that I think people will be looking for, that I would be looking for in 2016, is how many more. Can their numbers get significantly better? Because, And I say that because the streaming service field is crowded. You have entities that are falling apart or going out of business. RDO's assets got sold, for example, to, to Pandora. Spotify is very popular around the world. And um, so you're definitely entering a crowded... I know you're Apple, but you're still entering a crowded field where there are a lot of different options. Apple has a significant amount of weight in our culture. I mean, you look back to around the turn of the millennium and piracy was rampant. And thanks to advances in technology, people were finding music by just going online and ripping it. But for the longest time, it was mostly just college kids and young folks that were digitally savvy that were doing that. Suburban moms and dads, were not they were probably still going and buying the Radiohead CD or whatnot that came out in 2001. Apple changed that. The iTunes store, I think in 2003, made it a lot easier and normal for people to buy a digital download. And as a result, digital downloads became a significant business throughout the 2000s. That's ending now, um, going in, in reverse. But Apple had the power to do that. And people are wondering whether something similar will happen again. And so that probably would take some time to see. We'll be right back. 
Musonomics is co-producing a conference in New York on Tuesday, January 19th, called Copyright and Technology. Now in its sixth year, Copyright and Technology is a unique event that brings together people from the media industry, technology, and law for panels, presentations, and discussions about copyright in the digital age. I'll be moderating a panel on the future of music licensing, and we'll talk about new technologies for personal streaming of live events through your smartphone and the problems this is causing for the media companies that broadcast the live events. And we'll have a presentation of original research about the surprising value that data about piracy has to copyright owners who are hoping to learn more about their audiences. Copyright and Technology is produced by Musonomics in cooperation with the Copyright Society of the USA and Giant Steps Media Technology Strategies. It's a rare opportunity to learn about cutting-edge developments in the digital copyright field and to network with people with a variety of backgrounds in one place. So join me at the Copyright and Technology Conference at the Kimmel Center at NYU on January 19th. For more information and to register, visit copyrightandtech.com slash conference. The rise of streaming can signal good things for Apple, for Taylor Swift, even for Adele. But our potential new streaming music marketplace is in dire need of new laws and guidelines that will protect both creators and consumers, which brings us to our third and final most important music industry story of 2015. In February, the U.S. Copyright Office released a 245-page study on the current state of U.S. copyright law. Though the report didn't make huge headlines, the potential impact of the document and the recommendations it makes could be vital to the sustained growth of the industry. We've pulled out a couple of main points from the report. The first is that all music rate-setting activities on both the sound recording and musical composition side, whether radio, TV, or digital music, all take place before the same court, so we can more easily ensure that rates will be fair for different groups. Secondly, they recommend a performance right for the sound recordings played on AM and FM radio, and a federal requirement that all radio formats pay royalties for the performance of pre-1972 recordings. The U.S. is one of the few remaining countries that does not recognize a terrestrial radio performance right, and the recommendation will meet strong opposition from broadcasters. By the way, the other countries that have no public performance right in sound recordings played on AM and FM radio? Well, countries like North Korea, Iran, and China. But the main theme of the report is that our copyright laws are outdated. And in order to create a vibrant, prosperous, and fair marketplace, we must update those laws for the 21st century. Perhaps the current state of U.S. copyright law is best summed up by a statement pulled directly from the report. From a copyright perspective, we are trying to deliver bits and bytes through a Victrola. Twenty fifteen has been a year of change for the music industry. We saw subscription streaming services spring up seemingly everywhere. We saw Adele crush sales records without any help from those services. 
We saw Taylor Swift and Apple Music go from adversaries to business partners. And we saw the Copyright Office outline how to create a fair and sustainable music marketplace. As Neil Shaw said earlier, the industry is in a state of flux. We're shifting between physical sales, digital downloads, and subscription streaming. And with that shift have come some growing pains and some anomalies. It's possible that this year has been slightly fluky with Adele's release. You know, she hasn't released an album in a long time. She acted this year. Taylor Swift's album has been, you know, on the charts and high up all this year. So we've had these two megastars selling well and having high-profile butting of heads with the industry and the streaming services. You may have less of that next year. I'm looking ahead to what the major releases will be for you know, the first quarter, first half of next year. And there aren't high-profile ones, so um, you could see the Adele and Taylor Swift events as kind of you know, one of the last gasps of the old-school model working for the record industry. And, and, and over time, the record industry having to move more to a streaming-based model where they got to figure out the royalty situation with their streaming services and, and make streaming something that it works. We're moving in that direction. Warner Music Group just recently said that um, its streaming revenue surpassed its digital download revenue. It's pretty significant. That suggests that there'll be a lot more development on that front. We're going to find out in 2016. That's all the time we have for our last show of 2015. Big thanks to Neil Shaw of The Wall Street Journal for joining us. As always, if you like what you hear, let us know by writing a review or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It means a lot. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics, LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Thanks to our partners in the Copyright and Technology Conference coming up January 19th in New York. To register, visit copyrightandtech.com conference. The Musonomics Podcast is produced at NYU Steinhardt by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor with technical production this episode from Nathaniel Picard Buskey with help from Charlotte Leclerc, Alonzo Villagomez, Karina Barroso, Matt Chong, Kiana Ajina, Suroshri Dasgupta, Rosa Yibing, Blair Ador, Yasemin Kosarisalu, Judy Choi, Camille Delaney, Julian Duque, and Samantha Tubner. Thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>